This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a life of service and serendipity. Quick but important announcements today before our episode. The Big Change Program reopens its doors. It actually has reopened its doors on September 18th yesterday. Today's September 19th, Tuesday. That's 2017 for you folks way out in the future. This is the first time the doors have reopened since January. So if you are interested in making a big change to your health, your fitness, your weight, your outlook on life, your energy levels, your destiny, dare I say, check us out, bigchangeprogram.com. It starts at the end of September, the week of the 25th, and it runs for 12 weeks with an additional nine months optional. And if you want to find out more about it, you can go to bigchangeprogram.com. But also we're having two webinars tonight and tomorrow uh, at tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and tomorrow, Wednesday, the 20th at 8 p.m. And Josh and I will be talking about the seven high hurdles to weight loss and health. And we'll be talking about our experiences in overcoming these hurdles in either walking around them or jumping over them or crawling under them in some cases. And our goal is to make this a content-packed, useful webinar. And at the end, we'll be talking briefly about the Big Change Program and sharing uh, what I hope is enough information for you to make a decision, whether it's something that you'd be interested in or not. But this is not a hour-long sales pitch. This is real information, real content, the stuff that you're used to getting from these podcasts and from my huddles, if you listen to the huddles. If you want to sign up for the webinars, it's not too late. Plantyourself.com slash hurdles, H-U-R-D-L-E-S. Speaking of huddles, you get access to all the huddles, past and future, when you become a member of the Big Change Program. But there's another way to get it if you just want the huddles, and that is to become a patron of Plant Yourself. And you can do that over at patreon.com slash plantyourself. And because I have a problem with making content available only for pay, especially when it's completely scalable and it doesn't cost me anything or much of anything for an additional person or 10 or a thousand or a million to hear it. I didn't want to put this behind a high paywall. So the the height of the paywall is as low as Patreon lets me put it, which is $1 a month. So if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can search for Plant Yourself or just Stick Plant Yourself at the end of Patreon.com. So that's Patreon.com slash Plant Yourself. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. And you pledge a single dollar a month, you get access to all the healthy habit huddles. If you're curious what they're like, I just recorded one the other day on navigating simplicity in a world that compels and encourages and seduces us with complexity. And I put the first 10 minutes up there, and you can find it at plantyourself.com slash simplicity. So you'll be able to listen to 10 minutes. And if you like, you can then either get the big change program or become a patron and have access to dozens and dozens. I think I'm close to 40 huddles in the can and uh, three new ones every single month. Okay, that's enough about that. Let's talk about today's guest. My guest is T. Squire. That's pronounced T, but spelled T-H-I. 
And T is the garden manager for Homestead Hospital, which is located 35 miles south of Miami on Florida's east coast. Wait, what? Garden manager? A hospital has a garden manager? Yep. And it's in a county with 30% of the population on food stamps. T is a longtime urban gardener, and she spent many years as sort of an informal informal sales rep in the burgeoning farm-to-table industry in South Florida. That is finding farmers who are growing cool crops and talking to restaurateurs and chefs about using those crops in their food. Um, this wasn't a big thing. She says, you know, basil, arugula, uh, chives, these were rare fare in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and have only become popular with the farm-to-table movement, and she was a big part of that in South Florida. And as a sales rep, she was really good at talking her way into this position that she created for herself, growing fresh organic produce for the hospital cafeteria on basically a a 10-acre abandoned plot that was just growing weeds. The hospital owned it, but they weren't doing anything with it. And she also decided that not only was she going to grow the food for the hospital staff and patients, but she was going to use the garden for community outreach so that the hospital could teach people about the true roots of health, which is not pills and procedures, as we know, but lifestyle, diet, lifestyle, fresh air, sunshine, plant-based food, movement, all that good stuff. And she was going to focus on the plant-based food part of the equation. I discovered T on my Facebook feed. Someone had posted an article that had been in the uh, Miami Herald about her and about the program and about the hospital's growing commitment to it. And I was thrilled when she agreed to take part in the interview. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, T. Squire, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, how are you? Really good. Really happy to be talking to you. Um, as we said, as I as I mentioned before we started recording, your your title is garden manager at Homestead Hospital, um, which is pretty unusual, and it's why we're having this conversation. But first, I wondered, can you describe your hospital and you know where it is and the population that you serve? Sure, uh, we are located in Homestead, Florida, uh, which is about thirty five miles south of Miami. Um, and it's a very large agricultural community uh, in Miami-Dade. And we serve a population, Homestead is a population of about 70,000 individuals, but our service area is actually larger than that. So we uh, serve many more in, in the surrounding communities as well. And the population is actually, uh, f- for the most part, it's, you know, it, very low income. Uh, there are a lot of underserved uh, individuals here, immigrants, uh, legal and you know illegal immigrants. Um, rather diverse population from all of the different South American countries, as well as the Caribbean and other areas. And um, although we are in a huge agricultural center. Uh, it's actually a food desert. So, um, believe it or not, most of our the food that we grow here in Homestead, all this squash and beans and tomatoes, most of that doesn't feed the immediate community, and it actually leaves our community. So, it, it causes a 
you know, it's it's a difficult place to be in if you're, uh, you know, lack resources. Yeah, and I think I, I read that uh, something like thirty percent of the population of Miami Dade is on food stamps or some some sort of federal food assistance. Yes, I believe that is so. So, so if they're not eating the the squash and beans that are grown in the fields all around them, what what are people eating? What's what's the typical diet? Is it is it sort of totally you know Americanized, or are people still eating uh, according to their uh, lands of origin? It's a combination, uh, but you know we we live in a time where heavily processed foods are the norm and and what's accepted in our culture. Uh, so, and it's very inexpensive. The more processed that food item is, the less expensive it seems to be. And if you're on public assistance or on a very tight budget, um, you're going to try to buy as much um, what appears to be food as possible, as much, as much that can fill your belly and not necessarily be the most nutritious for you. So, um, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, there are not a lot of fresh markets or produce stands or farmer, farmer's markets within our area that, number one, they, there's not very many of them, and the ones that do exist don't accept SNAP or um, food stamps. So that's a problem. Even if you really want to eat better, um, it's it's more it can be a little more expensive and also um, harder to obtain because the places that have the less expensive local you know harvests don't accept food stamps so it, it it causes a you know it causes hardship right and you know I'm sure I'm sure the most of the listeners to this podcast understand, and broad strokes, at least, the links between, you know, the nutritional choices, food choices, and the food availability and health and disease outcomes. What, what do you see, what does the hospital see in terms of, you know, the chronic disease burden um, that you might expect from, from that kind of diet? Oh, it's tremendous. It's, it's, there's a direct correlation between what you eat and what your health outcome is. Um, we have a tremendous amount of patients who are coming in with chronic disease such as diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. And I think what's really been the most upsetting for everyone that works here is that we're seeing much younger people. You know, uh, a few years ago, it was alarming to see a, a young adult, someone in their mid-20s or even early 30s coming in with diabetes type 2 or, say, hypertension or something like that, now we're seeing teenagers with these issues. So, and then when you look to see what they're actually consuming, what their, you know, lifestyle is, um, it's, it's very obvious that the reason why they are in the position that they're in is because of the... Uh, lack of nutritious food that they're eating. You know, um, they're, they're eating, so they're, they're, they're consuming calories that keep you alive but don't nourish you. And I think that's something that people don't really 
understand. They think, well, I've got these calories and I don't feel hungry at this moment, so I must be okay. And I'm alive. You know, my heart's beating. I'm breathing, so I'm okay. But then all of these other health issues start cropping up. Right. And, you know, most most hospitals, um, you know, their, their bread and butter are these chronic diseases. It's what they spend their time, you know, managing, diagnosing. Um, what happened at Homestead Hospital to to make it want to do something, you know, truly preventive and not, you know, not sort of uh, the kind of lip service that, that we often see? Well, I think, first of all, it's, I have found since I've worked here that it really is a misconception that, you know, we want to keep, we want people to be sick so they can come here so we can make money. Um, that's really not how the system works. Um, yes, there are, you know, services that, you know, say cosmetic services that are, you know, um, a little extra that you want to do. That's where money is made. But when it comes to chronic illness, the issues are much deeper and the healthcare costs are much bigger and it's long term. And the issue really is specifically with Homestead, maybe not so much in some other hospitals with a different dem- demographic, but because our um, residents here are very poor, uh, they're also either uninsured or underinsured. So when they're coming here for treatment, you know, it's great that, that we can treat them, but we may not be getting paid to treat them. So it's a burden on it's a burden on everybody if if you have someone who's underinsured, and even when they are insured, you know, insurance doesn't cover everything uh, for the hospital or for the individual. So uh, you know, m- maintaining um, uh, prescriptions and follow-up care, that, that's all very expensive for everybody involved, including the patient, even if you have insurance. It's a tr- tremendous burden on the uh, healthcare system. So with us, I think we really tried to look many years ago, you know, what are, what's the real problem that we're facing? You know, you're diabetic. Okay, you're diabetic because... Um, you're eating too much sugar. Okay, so stop eating sugar, but we have to think out of the box, and it's more than just they're eating too many, you know, they're having too many sodas and cookies. It's more than that. Why are they eating these processed foods with all these um, added sugars and, and salts? It's because they're low income. And when you're low income, it's very accessible to get, you know, sugary foods and drinks, things that are heavily processed that have all the things that are not good for you. So that, and that's one huge problem. The other problem that I found along this journey is that people don't know how to cook anymore. Um, We no longer teach our children in schools any life skills. There's no more home ec. There's no more, you know, mechanics or wood shop, there's none of that. So if you don't know how to cook and I give you a box of produce, the best organic, amazing produce, if you don't know what the 
what what it is that I'm giving you and you don't know how to cook, you're not going to eat it. You're going to go and do what's what you're accustomed to. You're going to buy, you know, that frozen pizza or go to McDonald's or whatever the case may be. You're not going to eat the the food that's really good for you that's not processed. Right. So, so it, 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 it's yeah. complicated, you know, pro, well, it's, um, It problem. sounds like so, somebody took a, a public health approach, which, you know, it's, it's, it's not that it's antithetical at all to, to clinical care, but it's very kind of different training to think, you know, where the, the doctor is like, how can I save this person in front of me? And a public health approach asks those questions like why, what's the, what are the access issues, what are the cultural issues? So what, once that became part of the, the hospital's vision, how do they decide upon, you know, the, having their own garden? And my understanding, it's, it's, they've devoted a pretty large plot of land, I think 10 acres, to, to growing food in, uh, in, in homesteads. So how, you know, how, did they come up, how did they come to have that much land and decide to devote it to a garden which costs money every year as opposed to, you know, wellness center or parking or, uh, you know, additional radiology clinics or all the things that, that hospitals are trying to do to, to, to break even or, or make a little bit of money? Um, well, our CEO here, uh, Bill Taquette, he for many years had a vision for this land. The land, it's part of the campus that, at, at this time doesn't have a, you know, isn't part of a master plan, uh, but it, it's properties that Baptist owns. And he just, he, he got tired of seeing it just, you know, essentially grow weeds. And he wanted to do something that was more of a community give back type of project. And he spent some time, he and his associates spent some time trying to figure out uh, an approach and they spoke to a lot of the local farmers. They talked to all sorts of people who do all sorts of, you know, community gardens and that sort of thing. And then they were introduced to me, and my background is in urban agriculture, produce, and culinary. And I was running a project in, in, in Miami for a while that did some of this similar work. I mean, I, some of my programming is... is I you know, carried on, but um, uh, I I saw this as an incredible opportunity to, um, you know, to me it was just very natural to, okay, you have land and you want to do some sort of gardening or you want to attach some, you know, have some wellness initiatives and that sort of thing. Well, why don't we grow fresh produce for for our own patients, you know, the one, you know, why can't we grow produce that the the uh, cooks in the kitchen use to put on the uh, meals that the patients eat when they're here because it to me it's very logical that when you're sick you need to be well nourished and you'll get better faster. Um, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a very old school thought. I mean, there's nothing new about this thought process. And so I put together a proposal of what it might look like, and um, and Bill Zaket loved it, and we they figured out a way to bring me on board and to make it happen. And you know, 
I think in the beginning there was a lot of, what do you mean garden? You know, why, we're a hospital. Why why would we have a garden? Well, you know, who cares? Um, but we've done a lot of educating with our own staff and community. And real, I work directly with wellness and uh, community benefit and, you know, just teaching people the connection, bringing, bringing them back to earth, really, you know, to, to the basics of uh, being healthy and what it means and introducing them to delicious food because, to me, freshly harvested uh, vegetables and fruits prepared with fresh herbs and spices is so much more flavorful and exciting than anything I could buy processed and patched. You know, so I, I I look at it from that point of view. Well, this just tastes, number one, it tastes better, and guess what? It it's better for you as well. So, um, and uh, over the past three years, I've been very fortunate. They've really allowed me to kind of experiment and work with the different departments and see how we can integrate more nutrition and education into really everything that we do with our patients here. Mm. I have a lot of questions about you know, how the, the medical establishment came around to this and what the interface is, but I'm curious before we, before we go there, like what's, what's your background? How did you get into gardening, farming, urban gardening? And uh, you know, where, where, where did you start and where had you taken it by the time you made that proposal to Homestead? Um, well, about just over 25 years ago, my husband and I moved down to South Beach before South Beach was a place to go, a cool place to go. And, um, it was right around then when the rest, the, all the hotels and restaurants were getting, um, rehabilitated and the food scene was just starting in Miami. At the same time, I met a good friend of, someone who's a very good friend of mine now, uh, who owned a produce company, specifically uh, working with fresh culinary herbs and specialty vegetables. And he suggested to me one day, because he wanted to have his product in more restaurants, in the area and sell more product, he suggested, you know, you know, you're in between jobs. Why don't you, uh, why don't you sell things to the chefs here? So, uh, I was one of the very first people in Miami to sell fresh culinary herbs, and especially produce, to all the up-and-coming restaurants and chefs mostly in South Beach. So I would drive um, down the alley of Ocean Drive and knock on the kitchen doors and, you know, bring basil and arugula and that sort of thing. And if you have any culinary history, um, know about culinary history, um, you know, 25, 26 years ago, uh it was hard to find things like fresh basil and chives and things in any grocery store. And I think arugula was still quite a, you know, a foreign green. Um, so the American palate hadn't quite, you know, 
gotten used to it yet. So I started with the chefs, and then um, I worked with some catering companies, and then I ended up working for this produce company and uh, learned about organic farming, was able to help uh, them certify farms organic, and really learned about the whole process of, you know, the logistics of the shipping and transportation and harvest process and growing and packaging and everything that has to do with with the production of produce. And along the way, uh, met a lot of chefs and became very good friends with many chefs in the area and um, have just been part of the food scene here in Miami for quite a while. And I was working with the produce company when, uh, what, four, four, almost five years ago when I first met uh, uh, the administration here at Homestead. And um, I just thought this was such an amazing opportunity to really, really do what I'm very passionate about because a lot of what I do right now is education. And I teach people how to prepare meals and I teach them about um, vegetables that they've never seen before and how to, you know, enjoy them. And it's it's a lot of fun. And I think I, I'm able to, you know, open. I'm hoping that I've inspired a lot of people to try new things. Hmm. Well, it's, it sounds like a really fun job to, to, to go around sharing these, these sort of secret jewels of Mother Earth with, uh, with chefs. Um, yeah, it, it, is. It, it, it I find it very fulfilling. Um, but I've, you know, I've been able to kind of create this spot for myself and, um, I have a very willing audience too, um, and I I have an audience that also really needs to learn how to eat better. You know, um, if you're healthy, if you're fit, you may not need to as much as some of these patients do. I mean, we're talking about changing someone's life. You know, and to some extent, you know, whether or not they die sooner or later, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. You know, there's a lot of pushback when you start talking about things that are healthier for you. Um, people don't like that word healthy for some reason. So what you're talking about the, the folks that you're working with now to educate that they, they push back yeah. when you talk about healthy food? <laughs> Yeah, patients, and uh, sometimes sometimes it's the general public. I mean, you know, there's, um, you know, so many, such a high percentage of our society um, is so um, brainwashed that that healthy food is expensive and takes more time to prepare, and that the way you need to go is uh, only purchasing and consuming things that are already processed and pre-made for you, whether it's at a restaurant, a chain restaurant, or, you know, at the grocery store. I mean, if you took everything that was heavily processed in a grocery store, the store would be really small. Mm-hmm. We're talking, telling people that they need to maybe not use, you know, store-bought salad dressing because you can make it yourself and it, ha- it will taste better and be better for you 
you know, they kind of, their eyes glaze over and they don't really, they can't imagine not just buying it off the shelf and, you know, opening it up and just eating it. They, they, they don't know how to cook, so they can't imagine having to take a knife out and chop something up. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I work with populations who, in general, do have the money to, to buy the healthier food, you know, to, to do the produce, bake, do, make it themselves. And many of them still are addicted to the cheap calories of highly processed foods. And it's, it's because those foods are designed not just to be cheap and convenient, but to be addictive. And so I'm wondering, you know, I, I know I know what you mean when you say that like a healthy meal, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables with with fresh herbs and spices is the most delicious thing. But when I first started my own transition, I didn't think that I thought, you know, there's nothing in the world as delicious as, you know, a slice of, you know, greasy cheese pizza or chocolate cake or Doritos. How do you talk to people who whose, you know, taste buds have been reset so that anything short of highly processed, highly palatable food is just tastes really bland. It's it's tricky. Uh, you know, I'll be very honest. Um, the first thing I started to do is, you know, my first approach is really to deal with children. So I've always had lots of field trips with school kids because they're a little more open generally than a full-grown adult. Um, but, you know, and the other thing is I always found it really important to get them really engaged. So it's not about, okay, here's a recipe or look at this video or, or you know, um, you know, look at this, or, you know, try, just try something new. You have to really engage them. It, it has to be hands-on. So for me, where, since I have a physical place that they can go where they can actually see heirloom tomatoes growing and, uh, beans, green beans, and then how black peas grow, and you know carrots, you know multicolored carrots, and that sort of thing, and different colored lettuce. They can go and they explore, and I always quiz them. So, what do you think this is? And what do you think that is? And I have them taste directly from the garden. Hey, what is it? What do you think it is? And you know, where might might you've had it before? And I get them thinking about about vegetables, you know, just start thinking, touching, feeling, tasting, and then um, if it's a field trip or some other workshops, I actually get them and and we actually, I teach them how to cook. I mean, I, I'm like, okay, here, cut this tomato and let's do the salad dressing or marinade or whatever the case may be. And once, especially with children, once they get their hands in it and they have made, you know, the salad dressing or this pasta dish or whatever, they they take ownership and they take pride. And anytime a child has ownership, they're going to be more likely to try it. And if they try it, if if it's done well and it tastes good, they'll like it. You know, it's all about flavor. If it tastes good, people will eat it. You know, right now we're at that point where people haven't had people haven't had a real tomato, an heirloom tomato that tastes like a tomato instead of 
cardboard, <laughs> you know. So teaching them those things, expo- exposing them to that, you know, we'll walk through the field and I said, okay, if you see a tomato that's ripe, you know, just go ahead and, you know, pick it and eat it. And I've had so many people say, adults and children, I don't, I, I don't like tomatoes or I don't like them. They usually say, I don't like it like that, meaning raw, <laughs> you know, and fresh. Um, and they always say it, they always use that phrase, though, I don't eat it like that. <laughs> um, because they're used to having tomatoes as ketchup, tomato sauce. Yeah, that's pretty much it. They, they're used to having it as ketchup or tomato sauce. You know, and those two products have a lot of added sugar and salt because the tomatoes in the store that you buy, your generic tomatoes, the red rounds, they haven't been, they, they were not grown for flavor and they were not um, picked at the right ripeness and all of those things. So th- there's no flavor. So people think that's what tomato tastes like, but when they taste a real tomato, that has ripened properly, that has the sugars developed in it, that may have, you know, different flavor profiles of citrus or whatever, then, you know, you can, you, I see their eyes just pop open and it's, it's, it's an epiphany, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. I, I love the, the fact that you're, you come from this you know, pretty, pretty fancy, um, culinary background, you know, work, working with these uh, specialty vegetables and with, with uh, what, what has become a really hot, high-end culinary scene in, in Miami. And because I can hear the way, the way you're talking about it, you're coming at it as a real, um, you know, gourmand, as opposed to the way I would attack it as sort of a, you know, a kind of stodgy health educator. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess yeah, that's who you are, but it also it seems like it's a much gentler and friendlier and happier and more upbeat way in to people's hearts and minds. Yeah, I, I found quite a while ago that if you tell someone that it's good for them or it's healthy, it's a healthier choice, they're not likely to buy into it because, you know, because of the whole, you know, organic hippie scene back in the early 70s, people have the image in their head when they, you say healthy or vegetables, they're thinking of, you know, okay, twigs and granola and, and you know, I don't know. They have this image in their head of what um, healthy food is. Yeah, or that rabbit it's food. Not, yeah, rabbit food or, or it's not flavorful, you know. So, so I try very hard to not use any of those words like healthy, um, and I don't talk, you know, I, I'm not trying to make anyone into a vegan or plant-based or whatever. It's just like, to, you know, taste it. Do you like how it tastes? You know, and if you, if you can just get them to enjoy the flavor, and it starts with, you know, how the food looks, and how, if it looks appealing, if it's colorful, and, you know, it's nicely prepared, and, you know, if the textures are good. Um, one of the other things I've found over the years, you know, texture is huge. Americans in particular don't like mushy things or spongy textured things. They generally like things a little bit more 
crisp and, you know, crunchy and, you know, and a little salty and whatnot. So one of the problems with vegetables is that maybe their mother or grandmother used to cook something, you know, used to cook broccoli for an hour, so it was only brown and mushy. So they have these memories, these not-so-wonderful memories of what eating vegetables is. And if, you don't, and if you come from a culture that doesn't have, eat a lot of vegetables, like, I mean, I, I hear, it, for example, whether you're from the Midwest or if you're from certain South American countries, oh, I'm such and such and we don't eat vegetables, then if they didn't grow up with vegetables as part of their culture, but they went to public school and the vegetables they were exposed to were the horrible, you know, four times cooked green beans or, or spinach or whatever, if that was your only experience to vegetables and then you get sick and your doctor tells you, oh, you need to eat more vegetables, you're going to go, no way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so you have to, so if you show them how, what the potential is, if they don't know what the potential is because if their only experience were the horrible green beans and the school cafeteria, then there's no way they can understand what the potential could be. So uh, my job is t- to open their mo- minds a bit. Mm. So what are what are some of the the programs that you do? I know you have one, one called Grow Grow Your Lunch. What what mm-hmm. does that look that, like? That's the that's the field trip program. That's mostly geared towards K through 12 and that's a it's a you know it's an all-day uh, field trip they come out they we explore the garden I make them work in the garden they get dirty they might pull weeds or transplant or whatever um, depending on the time of year you know, hopefully it's a time when we can harvest something and then we uh, prepare a real lunch you know real food that nothing is ever processed, you know, and I might do things, you know, I serve water or, you know, mint tea, you know, iced mint tea with maybe some honey or something like that. Um, so we get them, we remove that process culture from that experience that they have here. Um, and then I discuss with them, you know, we we have a talk about why are we doing this at a hospital, and I you know I ask them, do you have family members who maybe have diabetes or heart disease? And in most cases, you know, half the kids raise their hands. You know, um, mm. and, and we talk about how okay, did you know that by making ch- better choices, you can prevent those conditions and maybe even reverse them, you know, not take so much medication. And it's hopefully an enlightening moment for them. You know, their families may not discuss the illnesses with them because maybe they don't think they understand. And the families themselves may not really understand how they got uh, these illnesses. So, you know, so hopefully it opens a dialogue. And if they enjoyed what they ate and, you know, 
kids can push parents to buy something at the store. I mean, if I make kale and they liked it, the next time they're at the store and they see kale and they say, hey, we had kale on this field trip and it was really good, so let's buy it. You know, you you can start to see that effect on what uh, what the parents buy. So that's, mm. and that's, that's been a very effective field trip. And generally the adults that come, the teachers and chaperones that come, are as intrigued and and have as many, if not more, questions than the students. And and just, I mean, most of these students, I'm imagining, are one or two generations away from from kind of you know peasant food, the the you know the very sorts of things you're growing that are you know perceived as too expensive or or elitist. It's what you know. Traditional peoples have been eating around the world for for millennia until we got this process culture. Is is there anything where you know you point them back or ask them or they they volunteer that oh yeah this is how grandma would cook or we had a little garden back in Ecuador or Nicaragua right so do they do they see this as foreign or can they can they connect it to their heritage? Uh, It depends on what we're eating that day, but I mean they're definitely when, uh, particularly if it's the parents have come, oh, yeah, I remember this from, you know, wherever. And, um, you know, and it's absolutely true. Most of these ingredients were, you know, kale was, con- kale was the cheap poor person's food, you know, for a very long time. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, this designer food. Um, right, kale so- is sometimes the only thing I can grow. <laughs> Everything else dies or gets eaten or or, or wilts or, or gets frost damaged. Kale just doesn't care. Exactly, and there's you know there's a lot to be said about things like that. I I, I there are certain edible wilds like purslane and things that occasionally pop up, and I let them grow because I use them as part of my educational process um, and show people that there are things that you can eat that you may not you know just because it's a weed to you, it may be some salad to somebody else, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, but, yeah, and then the other thing I, I because uh, part of the process is trying, or the goal is trying to get them to actually cook and not consume so much processed food. So I do talk to, especially if they have some sort of immigrant background, I talk to them about, you know, is there a favorite recipe that you, that your grandma or aunt or uncle or someone in your family, one of the elders in your family makes, is there a favorite recipe that you always want to go to their house because you know that they're going to prepare? If so, do you know how to prepare it? Have they taught you? And I would say, I may of the hundreds of people I've proposed this question to, I may have had one person it says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to make grandma's whatever. Everyone else is like, no, I don't know how to make it, or, you know, she doesn't want mm-hmm. me to help her in the kitchen, or all of these excuses. And I look at them, I said, look, you need to get with your grandma, whoever, and have them show you how to prepare your favorite food of your culture or your, you know, your favorite food memory. Because when that person dies, and they will soon, 
which usually, when I say that, they all gasp because like, mm. they hadn't thought about the fact that <laughs> this loved one's going to die at some point. I said, they're going to die, and you're not going to be able to Google grandma's recipe for whatever. A lot of things you can Google, and I look up recipes all the time, I lots of stuff, but I can guarantee you I cannot Google my mom's or my grandmother's whatever they would make, their signature dish. Because there are nuances, there are techniques, there are tricks, there are secret ingredients, you know, whatever it is, there are things that only, that makes it theirs, you know. Sure. And what, once once that elder dies, um, you it will be lost forever. And you'll no, and it, it would end and you'll not be able to share it with your children and those things. So, you know, so can you take that, you know, if it's not so healthy recipe, can you make it, you know, bring it into the 21st century and maybe lighten it up a little? Maybe. Or just accept it for what it is, but, you know, that action of being in the cooking, in the kitchen cooking is the first key to to making a life change. Right. So when it, it sounds like you have lots and lots of, of, of engagement techniques to get people excited about trying these new dishes, trying their old dishes, using these fresh ingredients. But the the underlying problems, the, the socioeconomic problems are still there, lack of funds, lack of access, um, the places that the farmer's markets don't don't take SNAP. What is the the vision of the Homestead Hospital Garden or or partnerships? to deal with those systemic issues? Well, we are hoping uh, soon, in the near future, to actually open a full-time farmer's market here at the hospital where we would accept SNAP and provide cooking demonstrations and other nutrition education and that sort of thing. So that's one of the primary things that we are looking into doing in the near future that will di- directly address those issues that we spoke about earlier. Um, and it's not something that every little or institution can do completely the way I have a vision for, but I think every hospital can incorporate some of these activities into their institutions. I, I, I believe it. it's... it's it's a matter of a mindset. It's a matter of saying instead of prescribing a medication, let's prescribe nutrition. Um, and and push that for a change, you know. And and it's difficult. I mean patients are patients expect a prescription for a medication when they see a doctor. You know, if you go to the doctor and they don't prescribe something and you still feel crappy, you're disappointed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, you like, but we have to change, you know, it's changing the mindset of doctors too. Okay, let me prescribe a carrot, you know, um, and, some, and, or, and some, you know, mangoes or something, you know. But it's just, it's, a, it's changing the perception of why you see it doctor and go to a hospital and it's changing the doctor's perception of how they're going to treat their patient what is the most effective and cost effective way to to 
treat them. It is not true that eating healthy is more expensive or more time-consuming. It takes more skill. You have to know how to cook. You have to know how to time man- manage. You need to... Uh, you need to plan. You have to do, you know, there's some amount of menu planning for the week, especially if you're very busy and work two jobs and have kids. It can be done because it was done. It was done when I was a child. My mother worked two jobs and we, and she cooked every day, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be done and it is less expensive, but you have to teach people those skills. Right. So, how have the doctors um, started taking to this? Because I've, I've interviewed lots of doctors on this show, and most of them say that they didn't, they never really learned anything about nutrition. If they took a nutrition class in med school, it was sort of you know IV fluid management. Um, a lot of doctors believe that there's really no relationship between food and health status. Um, I know that's changing in some circles somewhere, but what's, where, where is the medical staff um, in, in terms of like being fully on board that this is the, the number one way to, to, to treat, prevent, and reverse these chronic diseases? It's mixed. Um, you have some, well, I mean, first of all, it's very true that doctors and nurses are only, at least in the past, have only been required to take one nutritional class during their schooling. Um, and the nutritional class that they take is very uh, basic because it's really learning about a need X amount of calories and fat and sugar and salt to survive and be the most healthy, and you need to avoid this if you want to avoid hypertension and all that. So it's really kind of basic. It doesn't connect people to actually eating well and enjoying what they eat, you know, if you t- if you talk to most dietitians, you know, they start spitting out these numbers about milligrams of sodium and sugar and stuff like that. Hmm. You know, when and and you're there because your doctor told you to be to eat healthy. That's why people get turned off because there's numbers. It just doesn't sound very tasty. But hey, right. Big Mac. A Big Mac sounds pretty darn tasty, you know, it's juicy, cheesy, you know, whatever. So um, so you go to a dietitian and they're like, well, okay, you need to eat more vegetables and avoid salt, and it just doesn't sound very good. So there are doctors that don't give it a second thought because it wasn't part of their training because their training is to diagnose and prescribe. Um, but... I see more, I have come across and have been meeting with more doctors and dietitians in the past uh, couple of years that really get it. I mean, there are actually quite a few doctors that live healthy lives, lifestyles. They exercise, they're vegan, they're, you know, like there are quite a few and they try to teach this to their patients, but we just need to have more. So what I'm hoping to do is kind of be the sort of the liaison between the doctor and the patient's health outcome. You know, just, you know um, like I said, 
right now doctors will t- diagnose the patient as having a chronic disease, and part of the recommendations is always eat a healthier diet, eat more vegetables. But that's that's where they leave it with the patient. Okay, eat healthy. So we're working on developing a system, kind of a referral system where when you've got that patient that's been told this, now they can come to, you know, our farmer's market or whatever that we have on site at the hospital, come to us and learn about how to do it. You know, what, how can you, how do you really eat better? How do you really make this uh, lifestyle change? You know. Have have any of the doctors changed their own eating um, partly partly as a result of of your uh, programming and farm? Um, I I don't know if anyone's done a complete turnaround. I think everyone's trying to, to incorporate more, you know, fruits and vegetables and maybe a little less processed. Um, that's, that's like another level of reach that I haven't really worked directly on yet. It's, um, I kind of have to work backwards. I've got to, you know, there's so many patients out there right now that are, you know, they're in this, you know, nutrition, they're in the, like, they're like nutritional zombies. You know, they're just wandering around <laughs> going, what do I eat? The doctor said I can't eat, you know, these 30 things, so now what do I eat? And they're just mm. around, you know, in a daze. So <laughs> what I've kind of done is kind of, you know, I'm gathering, I keep picking them up and showing them one by one slowly but surely how to do this, you know, do this process. So, and eventually it'll, you know, as their health outcomes improve and um, their conditions improve, I think, I think that's when we'll have more doctors go, oh, that really does work. It's not like some kind of, you know, phase. Uh-huh. Because I was, uh, my, my son was, uh, was in an accident in the spring and I spent a lot of time at, a, at the hospital where he was being taken care of and I would, you know, the elevator bank that I would use was right next to the cafeteria, and I would see these doctors and interns and nurses, you know, rushing to to get their lunch, and you know, the food was like you know, heart attack specials, and most of them did not look very healthy. They were, I would say, about ninety percent of them were overweight or, or pushing obese, and you know, that's what the doctors are, and the medical staff is is eating and being served. Um, are are you able with with the uh, the scale of the mar- the farm right now able to um, provide food for the hospital staff or for patients or is it still mostly so just sort of um, small scale well, and educational? It, it, it's a small it's a small scale. I mean, everything I I harvest does go to our kitchen to be used how how they see fit. Um, and it's really more about, right now it's more about bringing awareness and just getting people to understand that we care enough that we're, we're venturing into this, this you know, on the, onto this journey and that 
we're we're making strides. We're really making an effort. Um, you know, Baptist as an institution is working very hard to change our food system and you know the food that we purchase and and put out for our patients and staff. It's a long, it's a it's a huge process because it's very complicated when you're as large of an institution as we are, and there's and there's a lot of complexity, but it's happening and it's happening slowly. I mean, you know, Baptist hasn't had trans fats or fried foods in at least seven years, I believe. Wow. Um, yeah, and and so we've been taking measures and you know all the products that food service purchases from um, in supply chain, it it gets vetted with our dietitians and, and other chefs and, you know, to screen out the really obvious bad stuff, uh, we still have a long way to go because a lot of, like any other institution, a lot of staff needs to be taught how to really cook from scratch on it for a large scale. Um, we are doing things, though. We just uh, took part, the entire system took part in a two-day training course with Forward Food, which is part of the Humane Society, and they trained all of the lead cooks and chefs from all of our hospitals on um, to learn uh, plant-based recipes recipes that they can add to our menu to add more, you know, to add more uh, variety and also healthier options. So, you know, we, we, it takes a bit of effort and time and, you know, they're, aside from, you know, it's not just our patients, but our staff too. They need to, they need to be retrained on how they eat and what they eat. So I, I read in the, uh, the Miami Herald article that at least when, when when the article came out, you were farming about a quarter of an acre, and which is I guess one fortieth of the total land at your disposal. What's what's the vision for getting to farming all ten acres? Like how long would that take? What would the production be, and who would be doing the labor? Well, I'm in the process of. Hiring some extra labor, that's the first step because it's really all about labor um, and and also funding for some of the infrastructure that's needed for the 10 acres. So if I'm lucky and, you know, with some of the press that I've been getting lately, I may be able to get very lucky <laughs> sooner than later. Um, but, you know, if, if within the next few years we can have it completely um, we potentially can grow on this plot up to 30,000 pounds of produce annually. And that will provide uh, a lot of produce to all of the hospitals in our system, plus be able to provide produce to our community on different levels, whether it be through a vegetable prescription program or through our farmer's market or however it happens. Um, there are a lot of different things that we can do, but we, you know, within the next few years, I, I think it, I think there's, it will happen. It's just, it's a, it's a process. 
So you're looking for um, like f- grant funding or, or uh, individual donors? Yeah, combination of grants, individual donors, uh, foundation type of uh, donors, um, eventually probably more um, more financial support from Baptists ourselves. You know, uh, this is still kind of an experiment in a way, so they're, you know, they're cautious. Um, and uh, But with that said, I've, I've been making great strides over the past three years. So, uh, but it's, you know, also as we have evidence that what we're doing here actually makes a difference in the community. I mean, the goal is that we can prevent some chronic disease or better manage uh, chronic disease and those that already have it and, um, you know, reduce emergency room visits and all of those things. So um, somewhere along the line, someone has to buy into the pitch that if you invest, say, a couple of thousand dollars per individual in our community to educate and maybe provide some nutritious food, then you per individual, you might be able to save, say, $100,000 in um, uh, unneeded medical bills. Hmm. So, and that's that's also, you know, we're looking at those metrics and what those numbers are. No one's done this before, so it's all very new, and we're all trying to figure out what does it mean, you know, because really, if I invest $1,000 in an individual, will they actually not get sick? You know, um, or what are the you know how have we improved their chances of not right. getting and, uh, and also it seems it seems like your you know the, the the question there is sort of dose response like it's abs- like what you're doing is kind of you know introducing people the very beginnings of of behavior change and attitude shifts you're not as you said trying to turn people into vegans or full fledged plant based eaters and so it's a really interesting question like where on the uh, you know the curve, the dose response curve, does the, do the savings start showing up? Right. So you know we have to do a lot of research in terms of you know if someone you know if someone just reduces the portion size of whatever it is they're eating, you know, will they actually you know, how much weight can they lose or or how much you know. How much can they improve their blood pressure readings or their glucose readings and all that sort of thing? And some of that, we're working on trying to develop the right data collection process for those things. And again, because no one's really done this before, there's no template for us to work off. And so we're we're really inventing it as we go. Right. So uh, I've taken almost an hour of your time. I don't want to uh, take any more because I want you to get back to doing the amazing work you're doing. <laughs> but I had one, one more question. I, there was a, a line in the article that I just found so charming. Can you talk a little bit about the sunflower garden and, and what the blossoms are used for? Oh, sure. Um, I like to grow sunflowers or actually any flowers. Sunflowers are kind of the easiest and most joyful um, and we also have bees here at the garden, so uh, it's another reason why we grow flowers. But um, 
we have used the flowers for actually to give out to patients. Like one of the batches went to labor and delivery to all the new moms to cheer them up or to patients who have been here for a long time, like a week or more. They're very, very ill. Um, and then we also have used the flowers for uh, to show appreciation to our employees. Like, you know, we did a thing for the employees one month where every department got flowers during a particular week when they were ready to harvest. And it just, uh, you know, it, it brings joy. It brings nature into your life. You know, we... In hospitals, you know, if most jobs you're stuck in an office, a cubicle, and in a hospital, you know, nurses and doctors are stuck not just within four walls, but they're four walls that are really tough to deal with, and they go through a lot. So, whenever I have an opportunity to kind of map their day and you know um, bring joy, we try to we try to incorporate that into it, and they're they're very appreciative. I love that. And uh, a few a few months ago, I, I interviewed uh, Florence. Uh, God, I'm, I'm blanking on her name. <laughs> I think Florence Williams, who, who wrote um, the Nature Fix, and she's, there's some really interesting research on you know sort of hospital rooms with a window that that, that overlooks some sort of nature. So I, I think maybe the the sunflowers themselves could uh, could provide some healing that that might be measurable at some point. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it's you know, it, it's something. There are little things that we can do, and it's not all food related, but it's all it's all it's all nature related. And you know, we talk, we we try to be sustainable and and do all the right things for our uh, environment. So, but um, yeah, there, there's a lot of teaching going on here. Wow. Well, I, I hope to come down and, and check it out someday, and. Uh... It sounds like a, a fantastic model, and I want to I want to thank you for being uh, an innovator and in the vanguard. And T. Squire, thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time to talk today. Well, Howard, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, also taking the time and being interested and in, and and also very engaged with, uh, with everything that's going on here. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I do hope you can please uh, give me a call or shoot me out an email anytime and that you're in our neck of the woods and uh, I'd love to give you a little tour. Awesome. All right. Uh, okay. Everyone heard it here first. I'll, I'll even get out my Instagram for that. So uh, I, I look forward <laughs> to it. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission of the show, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And for more information about that Big Change program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And if you're consuming this on publication date, September 19th, 2017, you can check out the Seven Hurdles webinar at PlantYourself.com slash hurdles. There's time to sign up for today or tomorrow. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 228. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 227 archived episodes 
at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the occasional email newsletters, the Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up. And you also get the this month the Oatmeal Project Report at plantyourself.com slash oatmeal. And if you're looking for other ways to support the show, other than writing that iTunes review, you can share this in other episodes, of course, on social media. You can email it to folks. And you can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift or ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com. Check out the right sidebar. There's a button for Patreon. And if you just want to do a one-time gift, there's always PayPal. And if you want to send a check and you don't trust digital uh, finance, you can just email me, hj at plantyourself.com, and I'll be happy to tell you where to send that check. I got three new reviews in August. I would love to share them with you. I can't remember if I've done this one already, so I'm going to do it again just in case. Teresa Coons writes, I found my peeps. I started my plant-based whole food diet and found your podcast to learn more. How lucky I am to get even more with your podcast. Well, I'm just as lucky to have you as a listener, Teresa, and especially lucky to have a listener who just starts listening and writes that review. Thank you so much. J.W. Brighton from the U.K. says everyone should listen to these top podcasts. They say when you're ready, the teacher appears, and he did. For me, it's impossible to listen to an episode and not come away a little or a lot inspired. There are some great guests covering some complex stuff, but it's not boring. If you're thinking about a change of diet slash life, this would be a simple and fun way in. You won't regret it. It's a win-win-win. You, animals, world. Loving the running stuff, too. It's got me back out there. Hard to fault. Keep it up, Howard. It's appreciated. Wow. J.W. Brighton, I want you to write all my marketing material from now on. I I read that, and I want to listen to my podcast. So thanks a lot. And David Donahue, MD from Delaware, writes, Scientific, spiritual, life-changing. As a lifestyle medicine physician, I need to keep up to date on ways to help myself and my patients lead happier and healthier lives. Howard's Plant Yourself podcast has time and again been an inspiration grounded in the best science. The insights I have received with this podcast have greatly helped me craft and enhance the disease reversal programs that I lead for my patients. Just one example of many, Howard's recent program, Living Life on Purpose with Vic Strecker, PYP219, provided so many life-changing insights on the value of connecting with one's core values that I have incorporated it as a central theme in my Cure Diabetes program. My patients have found the practice empowering, and it has helped them achieve greater health and well-being. Just when you think Howard has covered it all, he always finds yet another new set of insights to inspire you and change your life again. The books he reads, the authors he interviews are first rate. Many thanks to Dr. Howard Jacobson for the Plant Yourself podcast. Wow. Well, Dr. David Donahue, MD, thank you so much for that review and for the specific example of what's uh, what's helpful. Um, Listeners, I have a feeling that Dr. David Donahue is going to be on the show at some point sharing his uh, Cure Diabetes Program and the other disease reversal programs. So let's get working on him. And we can add another plant-based MD voice to the mix. In garden news, the most exciting thing is I have transitioned partly from frozen kale smoothies to fresh kale smoothies from our garden. Nothing beats the feeling of going out and grabbing your own phytonutrients from your own soil. And kale is really easy to grow down here. Uh, It's almost like nothing kills it. So um, yeah, grab a kale seed, throw it, throw it in a little pot, and you too can, uh, can experience the joys of, of fresh, local, organic greens. Uh, in running news, the uh, Pepperfest NC Flying Pepper Run comes up this weekend, and then I've still got the New River Trail. I've been uh, speeding up 
a little bit. I did uh, 26 miles over the weekend, 15 Saturday, 11 Sunday. And I reined it in, but I did feel like going, you know, eight and a half minute miles at uh, certain points along that ride, that run. And I also have cut out uh, caffeine. I no longer do goo with caffeine. I uh, forgot one and my running buddy Gio gave me a goo without caffeine and it felt better. So I figure what, if I'm, if I'm going to run a 31 mile race, why am I amping myself up in mile six with a shot of caffeine? That's only going to tire me out later on. If you have experience running with or without caffeine, I'd love to hear it. There's so much I have to learn about running. All right. It's my favorite part of the podcast where I get to thank people. First of all, Will Ridenauer for providing that beautiful song, front and back, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. WillRidenauer.com is where you can find more of his music, his beautiful Kora music, this West African stringed instrument that sounds so plaintive and haunting and beautiful. And last but not least, thank you to all the Plant Yourself podcast patrons. We've added a few this week, so if you want to listen, you'll hear some new ones. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Joan Fikonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Thelman, Victoria Domelanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doruna, Visa of Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Daisy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Lindemann Rhymes with Cinnamon. <gasps> Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Helen Burry's Rhymes with Furry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, A Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Koppel, Shell Rutledge, Julianne Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, Be well, my friends.